Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The late Budi Dharma, one of Indonesia's most beloved writers, spent a formative chapter of his life far from home, studying at Indiana University in the 1970s. He wrote a series of strikingly lonely short stories that would go on to form the collection People from Bloomington, first published in Indonesia in 1980. A man befriends his estranged father only to control him and ends up controlled himself. Someone steals his dead roommate's poetry and enters it into a competition as his own. Another character desperately tries to make contact with the old man across the street who may or may not be trying to shoot people from his attic room. With this absurd but oddly real little collection, and with his next novel, Olenka, also Indiana-inspired, Dharma ascended into the pantheon of Indonesian literature, winning numerous awards, including the Presidential Medal of Honor. Budi Dharma may be barely known in the United States, but Tiffany Tsao, who has recently translated People from Bloomington for Penguin Classics, hopes that an English-language audience is ready to embrace this unparalleled Indonesian artist. Tiffany Tsao joins us from her home in Sydney, Australia, to talk about a writer I'm now convinced everyone should read. Thanks for chatting with me, Tiffany. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. So what was your path to bringing people from Bloomington into my very grateful hands? Oh, yeah, where do I start? So... Before being a writer and translator, I was an academic, and um, I was doing research on regional Indonesian literature. And while I was doing my research, I would actually come across uh, Budhidharma's name, because he'd written a lot of essays of literary criticism. And I would come across uh, mention of this collection, people from Bloomington, Orang Orang Bloomington, in the Indonesian, um, and his other uh, novel that he said in the Midwest, Olenka. And I thought... That's so interesting. I have to look those up one day. And I never did until um, I was uh, in Jakarta visiting my father who lives there. And I was in a bookshop and I saw the collection because it had been republished in a third edition by um, Naura. Uh, that's the Indonesian publisher of the third edition. And I was so excited and I grabbed it and I bought it and I was so happy. And I read it. And when I started reading, I couldn't put the stories down. I thought they were so fascinating and eerie and quirky and yet heart-wrenching, sympathetic, you know, and I just thought these are great. And I, I wonder if these exist in translation in English. And I thought they must, they must, because Bodhidharma is such a um, prominent writer. And I asked around and it turned out they hadn't been translated. So there is a collection of some of his other short fiction, um, and that was published by Lontar um, Foundation. But I actually asked a publisher of Indonesian literature and translation, and he said, oh, well, they're fine in Indonesian, humorous even, but in English they ring false. And that really annoyed me. So, that, so then I decided that it would be my mission to translate the collection and to um, get it out there. I love that it sprang from this annoyance. And I would like for you to elaborate more on that, because I think it really gets at some of the questions you raise in your introduction. You know, what counts as Indonesian literature? What counts as Western literature? Who really gets to write about cultures beyond their own? I think this book really unsettles this boundary. Yeah, so I think I have become increasingly troubled 
uh, as a translator of Indonesian writing, because um, it has become quickly apparent to me that there are certain things that publishers want and certain things that um, English language readers want. You know, at first, I don't think it was that apparent to me. I thought, oh, it's, you know, cultural curiosity. That's great. Right. But then after a time, it did begin to grade on me that, you know, oh, people are reading this particular work to learn about Indonesian culture or Indonesian history or this aspect of Indonesian something. And I felt like, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think we consume American or European or even um, some major East Asian literary works in the same way. We, we think of them more in terms of literary merits or literary classics or what they have to say about you know, human nature or like the nature of existence, uh, you know, so we think more about philosophical questions rather than sort of specific geographical questions. And um, then, you know, I I began reading these series of um, interviews with one publisher. Um, and he would say, you know, the reason I am interested in translating and bringing uh, Indonesian literary works in translation to English speaking audiences is because what they can say about uh, of what they can say about Indonesia and I, I just find this, you know, like a bit problematic because it's nice that people are interested, but I feel like literature doesn't occupy that space. It shouldn't be necessarily reduced to like a travel guidebook or a cultural handbook. And so I just wanted to bring something in um, to that space that said, look, Indonesian writers are writing about lots of different things. You know, even they're even writing about the American Midwest. It's just what happens to get published and, and picked up and selected for consumption by English-speaking audiences. And so I will be interested to see um, what it's like when the tables are turned. And I think that if those sorts of arguments, you know, that the literary imagination can, you know, go wherever it wants, regardless of cultural, national, linguistic boundaries, if those those sorts of claims are to maintain any currency, I think it has to go in all sorts of directions either, right? So um, it's not that people have been saying, oh, you can't write about anyone. It's just that certain people happen to write about other certain people only in one way. So how is this collection about Midwesterners received in Indonesia? Would you say it's a classic in the context of the rest of Budi Dharma's work? I'd say it's definitely a classic in his career. I would say it is It is a classic. Um, although it is... I feel like it's just a bit difficult to put those labels on it in in the same way. In uh, like they don't translate. How do I put it? Like it can be very difficult to find even old classics, uh, air quotes of Indonesian literature in bookstores if they're not republished. They may be very difficult to find, even though they are considered classics. If that if that makes any sense. So. Um, it's not like here where there's like a million different editions of Sense and Sensibility. But um, I would say that these are definitely considered uh, classics. But I would say that, you know, everything that he he wrote, he was that well-respected. Like um, He had quite a considerable following until the day he died. And he was still being very productive and active um, on the literary scene in um, critiquing and in supporting younger writers in, um, you know, writing his, his own work. Yeah, I think maybe as to whether, you know, these things are classics, it's mostly a test of time, (laughs) I guess. So I think we'll see how it goes. You know, the Penguin Classics label on the book feels pretty special to me as a reader, because for the longest time, that word was synonymous with the Western canon. 
And I wouldn't have expected to find an Indonesian book from the 1980s that had never been published in English on that list. It feels like it almost lends it more cred going out into the world and might change the way that people perceive it. Hmm. I mean, how do you feel about it being a Penguin classic? I'm quite thrilled, actually, because I, I would say that this is, you know, a relatively modern uh, Indonesian work. I mean, published in 1980. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it does lend it that that perceived weight, right, to be labeled a classic. Um, at the same time, it's made me think about how arbitrary this classic label is. Um, you know, our agent got interest from Penguin Classics, partly because we were very specific in targeting um, the uh, head of Penguin Classics, who's from the Philippines and who we know has been championing the inclusion of more Asian uh, titles and Southeast Asian titles in uh, the Penguin Classics imprint. That makes you think like also about just the role that, not arbitrary, but, you know, like sort of quirks of fate or um, specific circumstances play in getting things to be called classics and perhaps included in the canon. Like, I think, interestingly enough, um, Pramodia Anantatur, who's like a very famous Indonesian writer, he's been published by Penguin, but he's hasn't been published yet under Penguin Classics, right? So he hasn't had that label affixed to him. But I would say he's definitely a classic. And as are, you know, many Indonesian writers who have been published um, maybe by publishers who have lesser distribution or, or whose works are uh, harder to get from um, America or Europe. Um, yeah, and I feel like all those should be included in, in Penguin Classics as well, right? So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess I just have mixed feelings. I do hope that it opens the way, certainly, for more Indonesian writers and Southeast Asian, more yet more Southeast Asian writers to be included and to enter, you know, the literary canon as mixed feelings as I have about the literary canon. So, so I'm curious about the idea of Indonesian literature, because Indonesian as a national language is pretty young in that role, less than 150 years. And it's not a new language. It's it's a standardized form of Malay, which has been around for centuries. But, you know, what distinguishes Indonesian from, say, German is that Indonesian is a language that not that long ago was meant to unite a country that is really like 17,000 islands and some 700 regional mm. languages. And I don't know if you have an answer mm -hmm. for what, quote unquote, Indonesian literature is in that context. I totally, but... yeah, I totally don't have an answer. Um, and I think it, it, you know, like it's, it's hard because, you know, at the beginning, Indonesian literature was so closely tied with the nation building project, right? Just because it, because Indonesian language literature was using Indonesian language, which was, you know, perceived and, uh, I don't want to say marketed, <laughs> but, you know, like, um, pushed as the language of, of the modern nation, the post-colonial language. It was the, lang the anti-colonial language, the language by which you would then have a, you know, a nation as an entity and, and identify as a nation, not just as, um, Java or Bali or particular ethnic groups, right? Within, within Indonesia, there's a certain hegemony that Indonesian, Bahasa Indonesia, does have. Um, so I'd say now, um, especially in, I guess, the metropolitan centers, most people will speak Indonesian as their primary main language, but it's just because of, you know, 
a concerted effort to try and get rid of other things. And, and Javanese would be the next language of, of power, I guess, because、uh, the Javanese are the ethnic majority. People from Bloomington was published in 1980. And this was actually when debates like that were, were raging. Like, it was sort of like Indonesian was seen as the quote unquote modern language and the language of modern literature. And you see in the 1980s this sort of attempt to champion regional languages, but also you see more the、um, Indonesian language portrayals of characters and, and societies that would not be speaking Indonesian. And, you know, the Bodhidharma actually is very famous for. Interspersing Indonesian with Javanese words, so he'll throw in a Javanese word every now and then, and so I think that's interesting, and that's something I couldn't capture actually, that Javanese inflection to his writing, and it was interesting because it sat side by side with certain things that、uh, Budhidharma had put in that were obviously,、um, uh, I guess, mimicking American speech. So, for example.、Um, The term of address,、uh, anak muda or child or、um, young man or, or woman, sorry, it's a, a gender neutral pronoun. So,、um, uh, you know, that, that appears often, right?、Um, and so I think I, I translated it as the equivalent of son, you know, listen here, son. And so、um, I do think it's interesting that Bodhidharma, right,、uh, you know, includes those、um, Javanese inflections because I do feel like that that is. Sort of a way he's pushing back against those, those expectations、uh, during a time where people were expected to speak good and proper Indonesian. So let's talk about Bodhidharma's influences, Indonesian and otherwise. The preface to the book lays out that his PhD at Indiana University Bloomington was on Jane Austen, which I might not have guessed just from reading the stories on their own. I got a much heavier dose of Kafka. And like the Gothic, actually. So, I mean, Indonesian, European, American, who else do you see in these stories?、Mm -hmm. Yeah, so、um, one handy thing actually about the collection is that it also contains literary references, direct literary references in and of itself. So,、um, as you said, Kafka, and Kafka、um, was、uh, you know, one of、um, Budhidharma's、um, strong literary influences, as well as Camus. And you'll see Camus more in. Um, the novel that he wrote,、um, set also in the same area. So for this one, yeah, I think Jane Austen and that very sly,、um, sense of humor,、uh, maybe especially around romantic affairs as in,、uh, the short story Yorick. I think there's that sort of dance that,、uh, the narrator does actually around his love interest. Um, and I feel like that is very Austen influenced.、Um, I, I found, like, really interestingly while talking to Bodhidharma during the translation process that,、um, he was, he was actually,、um, interested also in George Eliot as well and Jane Eyre. So some women Victorian writers. Um, and he also talked, you know, so that's actually why attics make an appearance a lot. And I, I remember asking him, I was like, there's a lot of attics in the short story collection. And he said, yes. Um, well, you know, it appears in, I think he referenced Mill on the Floss by George Eliot. And then he referenced,、um, yeah,、uh, Bertha from Jane Eyre. And then also、um, the yellow wallpaper. It's almost this sort of little feminist vein, I think, that you see in the stories that I would say weren't there before if you look at the earlier short fiction. In terms of Indonesian influences,、um, there are some、uh, references within the collection to another short story collection called.、Um, A Thousand Fireflies in Manhattan. 
by Umar Khayyam, and those contain stories also set in America about American characters. That is available in English translation, but it's a bit hard to get. And I think the book also is having that in mind, right? That it's not the first Indonesian literary work to be set uh, in America and be about American characters. And then there's also uh, references to um, poetry by Khairil Anwar, who's um, quite a famous Indonesian poet during the early part of the 20th century. Yeah. There is quite a bit of poetry in here, actually. And I did appreciate the little digs in the short story, Mrs. Elberhart, about how everyone in this poetry group is just copying the wasteland. Or even he has this one jab at Carl Sandburg's famous poem, Prayers of Steel, in which the narrator calls it, quote, simply overkill. (laughs) Boy, what a lousy poem. Yeah, no, I thought that was really um, funny as well. And it's just really interesting because there's so many layers to that because Buddhidharma himself would have, you know, he he had an appreciation, a deep appreciation for poetry and would have had an appreciation for these poems, but he channels the narrator's voice saying like, wow, what what crappy overwrought poetry. Yeah, there are all these levels to that, um, which I just think are, are very interesting. But also, you know, in the Indonesian version, right, Buddhidharma includes his own translations of those famous poems, the opening lines of those famous poems. And you can see him flexing his own abilities at translation. And they're like very good translations. He pays attention to the rhythm and and the meter and, and, you know, the feel and everything, right? Yeah, it strikes me as really lighthearted, too, in a pretty dark story. And it's funny because the theft of poetry is actually a, a pretty common theme. It's in two stories. And as a whole, like the collection feels pretty cohesive. And I think that owes a lot to the shared motifs and themes here. We talked about addicts. What other themes do you see elaborated? Yeah, so I think the one that became most glaring was sickness. You know, the pandemic came. The pandemic lasted for a very long time with a lot of lockdown. So also, um, yeah, attics and that social isolation. A lot of people next to windows just staring out at the world that resonated as well. But yeah, illness all of a sudden, um, it just felt like it was everywhere, including, you know, this work I, I was translating every day. And it's not just illness, right? It's contagion. The characters fear that they will catch an illness from another person. And that other person often says, oh, you know, don't worry, it's not contagious what I have. But that uh, possibility of being contaminated um, pervades throughout. And, you know, it sort of weaves in and out of uh, various stories. Yeah. It also feels like a fear of connection in some ways, because so many of these characters strike me as desperately lonely and they don't know what to do with their feelings. The adult narrator in The Family M, for instance, chooses to throw rocks at kids who are annoying him instead of talking to them. You know, like just people who are so afraid of the bad things that might happen to them if they make a connection that they end up doing some bad things. You know, like that alienation and atomization doesn't exactly help people. Yeah, that's right. Um, All of these characters are in, um, it's kind of strange, like they all find themselves in situations where they are isolated or they're on the outskirts. Um, Sometimes some of the stories will have these glimpses into this alternate reality, right, where families are happily enjoying each other's company or friends are happily enjoying each other's company, but the narrators by and large are, are on the outskirts of that. 
And yes, I think uh, the fear of illness and the fear of contagion does become this metaphor for um, this fear of other people and getting too close to other people. Yet at the same time, the characters yearn for that connection. And so you find these misanthropic characters still seeking out people's company, um, even the company of people they profess to find annoying or they dislike, and just find, you know, find themselves in this weird push and pull relationship. They hate being lonely, but they also dislike and fear other people and getting too close to other people. And I think that's a tension um, you know, throughout the story collection. And I think that was one thing that, that was interesting uh, when, when I talked to Bodhidharma about why he wrote the stories. And he said that he felt that the things that he wrote about in the short stories were things that he felt were, were universal in human nature. And he felt that he'd seen them um, back at home in, in Surabaya, where he was, uh, you know, in various towns in Java where he had grown up in, like uh, moving around. His dad was an uh, employee of the postal service. Yeah, and, and in the U.S. as well, uh, and during his travels. Yeah, Bodhi Dharma's comments on regionality, which you excerpt in your introduction, are pretty interesting. He said, if I had been living in Surabaya or Paris or Dublin at the time, I would likely have ended up writing people from Surabaya, people from Paris, or people from Dublin. It's a little, I think he's toying with our idea of regionality, you know, and very consciously echoing what other writers have said about the places that they write about, like Faulkner in the South. And I think um, he probably, you know, did have that sense as well, because um, he would have been acquainted with, I think, um, some of the hallmarks of English literature that we associate with regional um, places like Dubliners, right? So the reference to, you know, perhaps writing people from Dublin is an obvious reference to Dubliners by James Joyce. And, um, you know, people from Bloomington itself. So actually, one of the alternative translations for the title could be the Bloomingtonians. And, you know, um, I sort of pestered him a lot with, with different versions of the title. And I think in the end, he's like, you know, you, you can just pick one. It's all right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was like, what do you think of Bloomingtonians? And then he's like, well, actually, I was thinking of the Bostonians by Henry, you know, Bostonians by Henry James. So that'd be good. And then I said, but Bloomingtonians seems so long. And he's like, yes, it is long. And then I was like, well, what about the people of Bloomington? I'm like, he's like, yes, that sounds fine. And then I was like, no, let me think about it some more. And I think he's like, okay, well, just let me know. <laughs> you know? I imagine it might be kind of intimidating, but also wonderful and fraught to work with someone so well-regarded, you know, to have him as a resource, to ask what he really meant, to message him on WhatsApp. What was that experience like for you? I found this very empowering, actually. Um, I know there are translators who tell me they don't, they prefer not to have um, authorial feedback while they're working on a draft, but... I don't know. I think maybe I tend to be very insecure. So I really appreciate it when an author is in a position to, to be able to comment on the, um, on, on drafts. And, um, yeah, I just, I really appreciated, uh, his, his feed, his feedback. Um, and I think he was just very encouraging as a whole. So that was really nice, um, to have that encouragement and, you know, have him say, I really enjoyed your translation. Great job. Um, you know, that was, that's really nice as well, as well as, you know, to, um, just field any questions or concerns he might have. And that's something I actually am quite aware of just because there isn't that much, um, Indonesian literature in translation around or to be had. And so I am very concerned about 
I don't want to replay the power dynamic where there, there's a potential of like steamrolling over an author's voice. Um, and I'm always worried about that. So that's why I do tend to try and involve my authors. So sadly, Bodhi Dharma died in August of complications from COVID. He was 84. And in memoriam, you wrote movingly on your blog about an exchange you had with him about death and aging and what it was like for him to revisit all of the elderly characters who appear in the book, given that he'd written about them when he was much younger. Could you talk about that exchange? So um, I was just fascinated by the presence and the prevalence of um, elderly characters in, in the book. So I asked him in an email, I said, if you don't mind my asking, and it's sensitive because, you know, he's, because I wanted to ask him how, yeah, like you said, how he felt about the, the elderly characters in his book now that he was old. But I didn't want to really like, you know, be like, you're so old now, like the characters in the, you know, I didn't want it to be offensive. So then I was sort of trying to be very polite. Um, but he was very gracious and wrote like a very, um, yeah, I think a very moving and, and touching uh, re- reply where he talked about, you know, first of all, why he included so many elderly characters. And it was because while he was taking walks around Bloomington, he came across a lot of elderly people. And he said some of them would chase him to tell him their stories. And um, and he said some of them would, um, you know, he found out would just go to one supermarket, drive to a supermarket, buy a single item, then come back home, rest, and then go out again to buy a single item. And this is, you know, their way of combating loneliness, right? And so I think he, he felt for them. So that's why he said he included so many elderly characters. And then he said, well, oh, as to feeling old, right? He said, well, it's so funny because, you know, when I was younger, and he was around in his 40s, actually, when he wrote the collection. Anyway, so uh, he was saying like, yes, I used to think 70 was so old, so old. He said in uh, Indonesian, tua sekali, like very old, so old. And now I feel like 70 is so young. <laughs> age happens, right? Um, no one can resist old age. Um, I, I think, you know, be, being old himself stre- maybe strengthened that connection. I don't know. Now he felt like he was in the same place as, as the curmudgeonly characters that he was, he was portraying at the time. We have links in the show notes to Tiffany Tsao's translation of People from Bloomington by Budi Dharma. Another one of her translations made the Booker International Longlist this year, Happy Stories Mostly by Norman Erickson Passaribu, which also toys with the absurd. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.